0: The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of CHEST content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by CHEST. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHESS podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper. I'm the host of the CHESS podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation on presser use in patients with septic shock and atrial fibrillation. Today, as our guest, we are fortunate to have Dr. Annika Law, the first author of this CHESS publication entitled Comparison of Heart Rate After Phenylephrine versus Norepinephrine Initiation in Patients with Septic Shock and Atrial Fibrillation. Dr. Law, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Um, So, my name is Annika Law. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary allergy and critical care medicine here at Boston University. Um, I'm also a critical care physician and a health services researcher. I'm uh, a principal investigator on a K23, and my primary focus is actually on understanding determinants of outcomes in ICU survivors. Uh, especially with regards to uh, decision making around tracheostomies, gastrostomies, and post acute care. But um, more broadly, as a health services researcher, I'm I'm interested in studying variation in practice patterns in the ICU. Um, so especially in data free zones, I you know different people do different things for different reasons, and we can sometimes leverage those differences in outcomes to make new inferences and generate new hypotheses. So. This particular study that we're talking about now, looking at differences in heart rates after phenylephrine and norepinephrine initiation in patients with septic shock and atrial fibrillation, uh, that kind of study falls nicely in that category of research for me, looking at differences in practice patterns and finding differences in outcomes.
0: That is so true. As an intern resident and fellow, if there's one thing that we knew is that every attending had their different way of doing things and trying to figure out why they did it uh, was sometimes uh, the, most of the fun and we're working in the ICU. Uh, yeah, so let's,
1: absolutely. Into this
0: <laughs> um, so let's get into this issue of um, initial vasopressor choice. Why is it so important that we choose the right vasopressor for the right patient in septic shock?
1: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I think um, the thing that makes me kind of laugh is, uh, you know, we were all taught about vasopressors using that famous receptor table, you know, that table that shows phenylephrine has strongest alpha activity, epinephrine has alpha-beta-1, beta-2 beta activity, norepinephrine is just alpha and beta-1. And, you know, that table is one that we've seen so many times as med students and residents, and we probably also taught it quite a bit too as fellows and attendings. And, um You know, I think it's funny, we make a lot of our decisions about vasopressures based on both a combination of that table, like the physiologic rationale of each vasopressure choice, and we combine that with whatever trial data we have that exists. So, for example, you know, data that shows that norepinephrine results in lower mortality and fewer arrhythmias compared to dopamine. Um, All of that together kind of influences our choice of what we think matters in terms of which vasopressure should be the primary choice. Um, so that's the sort of the foundation for the surviving sepsis guidelines saying that norepinephrine should be your first-line vasopressor. But, you know, despite what we have, that table and the data that we have, there's definitely still gaps in our knowledge. So, um, you know, the surviving sepsis guidelines recommend norepinephrine over dopamine as your first-line vasopressor of choice. And they say that's based on, um, high quality evidence, but, um some of the other head-to-head uh vasopressor choices, so like norepinephrine versus phenylephrine, for example, they're lacking in data. They're the the guidelines kind of rate those as either low quality or very low quality evidence. Phenylephrine actually isn't even in the surviving sepsis guidelines at all. Um and, and AFib is is barely mentioned as well. There's a brief note in there about um using vasopressin uh for for fib, but AFIB is extremely common. It's a marker of disease severity and sepsis. We know that now, and it it contributes to poor outcomes. Um, And so, kind of filling in some of these gaps is important. And and part of the question for this particular study is actually what you're asking is is the initial vasopressor choice for septic shock in patients with AFIB important? So you know we we make decisions based on the based on the receptor chart. You know we found in our study that lots of people actually use phenylephrine for Patients with AFib and septic shock, despite phenylephrine not being in the guidelines at all, based on that 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 physiologic rationale that phenylephrine has primary alpha activity and less beta one activity compared to norepinephrine, so it's it's common to make decisions based on that receptor chart and based on what we know from the Surviving Sepsis guideline, But there's definitely gaps, and um, the question is, does it does that physiologic rationale matter? Does that phenylephrine that that rationale that phenylephrine has more alpha activity relative to beta-1 activity, does that matter to patients? And do we see an actual difference in in heart rates?
0: Yeah, that is absolutely so intriguing. Actually, um, after I read your article, I went through the PDF, the surviving census PDF, um, and searched for phenylephrine. And as you said, there's no mention of it whatsoever. Um, Right. Adding, and adding the fact that, you know, we have patients with septic shock, and it's, some patients just don't have septic shock. They have um, mixed shock. Um, oh, and absolutely. some patients, as you said, have atrial fibrillation. So uh, I, I think this paper is very welcomed and uh, very intriguing because it answers, you know, a real-life question, how do we take care of these patients? Before we get into the rationale for your study... Um, How often do you do um, bedside uh, ultrasound echo, and how does that influence uh, your decision about vasopressor or ionopressor?
1: It's a good question. I think um, I'll say that initially when I first, you know, in training, ultrasound at the bedside was relatively uncommon. Um, I think more recently, more and more, we're using ultrasound at the bedside more and more to guide our decision-making, and it's helpful. Um, certainly it can help us understand if a patient seems to be kind of preload dependent or sort of reliant on filling time, and and that can sort of be one piece of the puzzle for sure.
0: Great. Okay, so let's jump into your study. Um, Why did you perform the study looking at uh, phenylephrine versus norepinephrine in septic shock and atrial fibrillation?
1: Yeah. So this is like one of those studies that really is truly born out of a clinical moment where um, I remember very clearly I was you know, faced with a patient who had rapid AFib and was on norepinephrine just like most of our septic patients are. And you sort of face that question, well, they're in rapid AFib and how much is this norepinephrine sort of exacerbating things and would things be better if I switched to phenylephrine? And it's something we do all the time um without really knowing how much effect that switch actually has and you know technically as we talked about phenylephrine not being in the guidelines you're almost like going against the guidelines by using phenylephrine in that way um but it's something we do all the time because of their physi- physiologic rationale and so um it was really that clinical moment where I was like is there any data to show what actually happens when you switch to phenylephrine or when you're using phenylephrine instead of norepinephrine and, um, you know, there's certainly no large trials. And um, so, yeah, I was just interested in quantifying that difference in heart rate between patients who got phenylephrine versus norepinephrine.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. So You look at the current evidence and said there's a gap here that uh, hasn't been identified and actually going after that. So how did you go about uh, figuring out um, the role of phenylephrine versus norepinephrine? What were your study methods and how did they address any limitations that you noticed uh, in the literature?
1: Yeah. So, the study design is was really pretty simple. We used the Mimic4 database. So, um, some listeners might know that to be an EHR database that contains really granular patient details like vitals and uh, medications and, um, you know, a whole gamut of very granular minute-to-minute data. So uh, what we did there was we identified a cohort of patients with sepsis and atrial fibrillation, and we found the ones that were started on either norepinephrine or phenylephrine. They had to be started on one of those alone. Um, and then we quantified the difference in heart rate after um, starting those phase pressures one hour and six hours after, after initiation. Uh, we did two types of analysis, actually. The first one was just a standard multivariable adjusted linear regression model. So again, looking at... Um, the outcome being heart rate at one hour and six hours after vasopressor initiation, and then we just adjusted for as many confounders as possible. And with the Mimic 4 database, you're sort of you have the luxury of controlling for a lot of things. So you can control for use of other rhythm agents or rate control agents like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, etc. Um, heart rate before and at the time of vasopressor initiation, the patient's map at the time of vasopressor initiation, any history of AF at the time that they were admitted to the ICU, whether they were mechanically ventilated, what their SOFA score was. Um, And we uh, looked in the cohort and found that there was probably some um, effect modification by initial heart rate, the heart rate at the time of vasopressor initiation. So we stratified into patients who were in RVR and not in RVR defined as a heart rate greater than 110 um, at the time of vasopressor initiation. go I was going to say, using that same model, we also looked at um, some secondary outcomes because, of course, heart rate matters, but we, for for patients, the, the things that matter the most are things like ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, and hospital mortality. So we looked at that, too. Gotcha.
0: Sure. And then Ellen um, Wolke has done a lot of work looking at atrial fibrillation. Yeah. So right. why... Why atrial fibrillation? Because uh, it's probably important for our audience to know why atrial fibrillation is such a big deal, or at least AFib with RVR is such a big deal uh, in the ICU.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's really fascinating that atrial fibrillation has in, a lot, in part due to a lot of Alan Walkie's work, has really come to the forefront as 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 not only just being recognized as a complication of, of sepsis, but it's really being noted as a marker of disease severity that, that if you go into AFib acutely because of your sepsis, that, that's a marker of disease severity, just like other elements of the SOFA score. And it also contributes to poor outcomes long-term. So, um, and, and it's so common. It's just something that we see all the time in patients with sepsis. So kind of knowing what to do uh, about their AFib um, during sepsis is important
0: and then um, this is obviously um, looking at a retrospective cohort so there's always this question of um, uh, you know trying to make sure the bias isn't introduced, and we sometimes don't know why physicians make decisions that they do uh, we hope by you know extracting these data points um, that we can control for it but how do you make sense of it? You know, Sometimes physicians have an inkling about something that they're not putting on paper, they're not putting in a chart. Right. Um, how do yeah. you adjust for that? How, how do you make a sense of that? Because sometimes patients will go into atrial fibrillation because of electrolyte abnormalities, because they have a history of heart failure dilated um, uh, uh, chambers. Um, and then how do you adjust for other co-interventions, such as um, arrhythmi- um, um, uh, uh, other medications that treat arrhythmias, um, other pressors, uh, cardioversion?
1: Yeah, I that's a, that's a fundamental question and problem with observational research. Um so, you know, prior to our study, there actually uh was only a couple observational studies. They were much smaller. One of them was only 60 60 some patients, 67 patients, something like that. Um and they they similarly were looking at heart rate, but they used a slightly different method. They used a Cox proportional hazards method to look at um time to heart rate control. And I think with both, both observational studies, you know, with retrospective design, it always means that you can't completely exclude the effect of confounding by indication, as you say. So it's possible that clinicians are estimating amongst patients what their risk of is of going into a higher Heart rate of, you know, if they weren't in RVR to begin with, maybe they're sort of assessing and based on things that we can't completely understand that they're starting those patients preferentially on phenylephrine, like the higher risk patients are getting phenylephrine. And we actually do know that's actually happening even in our study. You know, we, we, you can see if you look at the figures, you can kind of see that prior to starting on phenylephrine and norepinephrine, the phenylephrine group actually has quite a notable difference in terms of their heart rate rise, like their trend in heart rate. Goes up quite a bit more than the group of patients who ultimately got norepinephrine, and so that probably does suggest that there is something going on in terms of why these patients are getting phenylephrine. And like I mentioned, these these patients are getting phenylephrine because because they're in AFib. You know, we don't normally use phenylephrine for other indications in sepsis, and so you know, all we could do was do our best to adjust for confounding by indication. And luckily, um, you know, one big strength of our of our data set is using EHR data, we actually were able to control for a really large number of uh, confounders, basically. You know, we were able to look at, um, like you said, the electrolytes. We were able to control for their um, trend in heart rate. So, looking at hourly heart rates before vasopressors were initiated, what was the change in heart rate in the six hours prior? You know, if you if you think that that patient's heart rate is starting to escalate very quickly, maybe that is your hint that that patient is a higher risk for RF, uh, RVR, and maybe those are the patients that preferentially get phenylephrine. Um, and and uh, as you said, adjusting for things like um, uh, use of other rate and rhythm control agents. We were even able to control for cardioversion or, um, you know, other things like that. Um, so that that helps. That helps control for some confounding by indication. And it's notable that if that had been playing a major role, that, that confounding by indication actually tends to bias your results towards the null. So So that, you know, you might actually be kind of losing your effect of phenylephrine. But in fact, we still found an association, despite any residual confounding by indication, we were still able to detect an association between phenylephrine. Um, And so it's actually possible that, um, you know, if we didn't completely control for confounding by indication, that the difference is actually even greater than the one that we found.
0: Yeah, that is really intriguing. And I think uh, the fact that you're able to leverage um, this electronic health data looking at uh, data points prior to initiation of the uh, phenylephrine, shows what uh, I think a lot of people have suspected before, that people are treating these patients beforehand when they see that slight increase in heart rate. And that's probably due to you know the nurse, the IC nurse being at the bedside and the clinician being at the bedside. Right. having their eyes on the patient and seeing um, the, the, the the changes. So, uh, Anika, let's get into your key findings. What did you find in terms of your primary and secondary outcomes, and how do you interpret these findings?
1: Yeah. So, we found we were able to use an extremely large cohort. We, we um, ultimately included almost 2,000 patients, and it was pretty evenly split, about half got phenylephrine and half got norepinephrine and basically what we found that at 1 hour and 6 hours after after vasopressor initiation the phenylephrine group had on average a heart rate that was about 4 beats per minute lower than the norepinephrine group and and that difference was driven mostly by uh the RVR subgroup so the RVR subgroup had slightly higher slightly larger differences between phenylephrine and norepinephrine compared to patients who um were not in RVR And we actually did a sensitivity analysis using a different analytic method called interrupted time series, and we found pretty similar results that heart rate, um, the difference in heart rate was about six beats per minute um, comparing the phenylephrine group to the norepinephrine group. And so, you know, I think I interpret those findings as basically yes, getting phenylephrine instead of norepinephrine probably leads to a modestly lower heart rate. Um, It's more significant if that patient is. Already in RVR to begin with, so the the faster the person's heart rate is to begin with, the more likely of a difference you are to see with phenylephrine compared to norepinephrine. Um, and our secondary outcomes, though, um, were were no different. So uh, all of that to say is you'll you'll see modest differences in heart rate. We didn't find any differences in secondary outcomes. No differences in ICU length of stay, vasopressor duration, no change in mortality. Um, And so, overall, I would say it's kind of a proof of concept that the physiologic rationale is there, um, and I think uh, probably more data is needed to actually determine if those kind of modest heart rate um, differences lead to more significant clinical outcomes that patients will actually recognize.
0: I think that brings up a follow-up question I was going to ask you. To play devil's advocate, some may say, you know what, a difference of four in heart rate who cares? Um, yeah. Um, but, you, you, but you could argue, you know, that's the average. Uh, we're not looking just at averages. We're looking at uh, individual patients. So uh, how else would you respond to that But people say, well, it's only a difference of four. And for rvr you know, patients are going from 100 beats per minute to 150. Um, how, how are you going to make this clinically relevant or that it changes practice?
1: I would say, actually, I think that's a very fair assessment. I mean, four beats per minute is indeed a very modest difference. Um, th- there is a difference there, but you know whether that actually contributes to anything long-term for the patients, whether that actually matters. I think the jury is still a little bit out for that. Um, I think it 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 kind of informs you that if you have a patient who you feel like is very high risk, or if you have a patient who you feel like is very dependent for whatever reason on their filling time and might benefit from slightly slower heart rates. Then, yeah, maybe phenylephrine is the right drug for them. Um, but should we be switching everyone over, you know, from norepinephrine to phenylephrine? I, I I don't. I think it's premature to say that. I think because it's a retrospective observational study, I would look at our results as primarily hypothesis generating and really should be motivating um, more people to be doing larger. Randomized studies to kind of better understand the relationship and the and the effect of phenylephrine in patients with sepsis, especially um sep- patients with sepsis and atrial fibrillation
0: I definitely agree um your your study does bring up this issue of you know guidelines and their role in clinical practice, and guidelines are definitely important um the their the patients um, who have been managed by clinicians who definitely need to follow the guidelines if they receive, uh, you know, the the standard of care practice. But the challenge in uh, medicine and especially in critical care is the nuances, you know, optimizing finer details where sometimes the guidelines can't answer every single question. And I think your study highlights that. Um, What would your response to that be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is like the ultimate tension in in medicine: is when do you follow the guidelines, you know, protocolized guidelines, and when do you veer off the path for sort of more person, a more personalized approach to to care? And I think it it really depends on the situation. It depends on how much of that variation is warranted versus unwarranted, how much of that deviation is, you know, uh, sort of due to just sort of a lack of Knowledge or a lack of um, application of good evidence that we already have, and how much of it is how much of that variation is just due to the fact that we genuinely don't have answers for um, the the best sort of optimal treatment for each individual phenotype and each individual patient. Um, there's certainly a lot of research out there in the field, as you know, for um, understanding, for example, different phenotypes of ARDS, and um, might there be. Um, different subgroups that might benefit from from different types of vasopressor regimens. So, you know, the AFib uh, cohort being a perfect example of when it might, um, for certain patients, make sense to kind of deviate from that protocol, that guideline of using norepinephrine first line. Um, you know, I, I think all of this is always an evolving field and the more data we have to guide ourselves, the the better.
0: Gotcha. And then the almost uh, perfect studies and uh, in, in your um publication, you'll mention certain limitations. Maybe you could share those with our um, listeners, as well as comment on how you would address them in future prospective studies.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I think the biggest limitation is one that we talked about, which is the confounding by indication. I think that will always sort of be, um, for retrospective studies, that the concern is that the phenylephrine group had a higher risk for a greater heart rate or um, greater complications from AFib than the, the patients who ultimately got norepinephrine. Um, and, and as we mentioned, I think it's, it's notable that despite that confounding indication, we still found a difference. And so I think future studies will, will um, if, if you're truly actually able to randomize between phenylephrine and norepinephrine, you might even be able to see um, more clearly the true, of, true clinical effect um, between phenylephrine and norepinephrine. Um, some of the other limitations. So one of them is that we weren't able to completely distinguish between chronic AF and acute AF of critical illness. So, mimic four is a fantastic, uh, database with really, really well validated granular data. For example, um, being an AFib at all has been validated. That's, that's noted by nursing documentation and, um, but unfortunately, MIMIC-4 doesn't have chronic comorbidity, so we couldn't, we couldn't clearly say that um, we couldn't, for example, clearly rule out that some of these patients had chronic AFib and perhaps might there be some difference between how chronic AF patients and acute AF patients um, respond to phenylephrine versus norepinephrine. Um, what we were able to do was that we were able to see if a patient was an AFib at the time of their ICU admission, and if they weren't, um, which most of them were not, we sort of assumed that they didn't have chronic AF. Um, and so further studies should probably look at whether there's a differential effect of phenylephrine compared to norepinephrine uh, based on whether the AF is chronic or acute.
0: And In terms of a take-home message for our listeners, um what would you recommend uh, based on uh, your study findings?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, overall, I think there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge in terms of how we um, use vasopressors in septic shock. Um, some of my colleagues are doing work on um, optimal thresholds at which you kind of move from norepinephrine to your second um, agent. And I think this is, this highlights another gap, which is uh, whether certain agents are better for certain cohorts of patients. Um, I think overall our findings were that phenylephrine has a modest effect on heart rate or is associated with a modest difference in heart rate comparing phenylephrine to norepinephrine. Um, whether or not that uh, is clinically meaningful to patients uh, remains to be determined, and hopefully there will be um, more randomized controlled studies to, to, to better determine um, the relationships between vasopressors and patient outcomes in different subgroups.
0: Definitely. We want a really high-quality data. I mean, all, one of the challenges is that when they've gone on to do these really big RCTs, a, a lot of the work from Australia and New Zealand, sometimes they found no difference, even though um, there has been a dogma uh, in the practice right. of uh, the subclinicians. Right. Uh, right. What are your comments on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the issue of of negative findings and large RCTs and critical care studies has been something that um, you know our field has been plagued by in recent years. And um, I think part of it is uh, uh, you know it's a complex issue, and we could have a whole separate talk on that. And some of it has to do with identifying um, a priori which population we think is most likely to have an effect. for whatever regimen it is that you're using, um the pragmatic trials and um adaptive trials, and kind of even even beyond that converting to a learning health system that kind of um kind of automatically on as on a health systems level enrolls patients and randomizes patients and very efficiently kind of pivots between different um uh randomization arms. I think that's sort of where we're going to. Um, have to pivot to in order to, to get data that we can actually, um, really use.
0: Definitely. I agree with that. Um, Anike, you and your team have done an absolutely phenomenal job. I really applaud you all for addressing a really common issue that no one um, had dealt with before and identifying this huge gap in our knowledge base and um, starting the research path uh, down uh, to to answer this question. Um, I do want to give you one last opportunity to share any concluding uh, remarks with our audience um, and any take-home messages
1: yeah well um i mean thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to to talk with you and share my work. Thank you for your interest um yeah i think i, I you know i think um keep looking for gaps in and data free areas and um and and let those be kind of um stimulating to you to kind of ask more questions. And um, whenever you do kind of see this gap and you're sort of like, well, this, there's actually not any data here, despite us kind of having this common practice, those are great areas to explore a bit further. Um, and as a field, if we keep doing that, we'll, we'll certainly move forward.
0: Definitely agree. Anika, you've been an absolute pleasure to interview. I really enjoyed your engaging personality. Um, So thank you very much for a great conversation. um, And a very big thank you to our Chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper. And this is the Chess Podcast. Strong work. Keep up. Bye.
1: Thank you. Bye.